Back to Basics, Minimally Invasive Surgery by Lisa Spruce. Abstract. In the past 20 to 30 years, minimally invasive surgery, MIS, has become commonplace in almost all surgical specialties. The needs of the perioperative team and patients are different during MIS than during traditional open surgery. The equipment and instrumentation required to perform MIS are extensive and continue to evolve as new techniques are developed. As advances in MIS occur and more procedures are completed using this method, some surgeons are conducting research studies related to the efficacy of certain long-standing MIS protocols. Perioperative nurses are challenged to stay current on the available technology and results of research studies so that they can provide safe patient care. This Back to Basics article will provide basic strategies for perioperative nurses to ensure successful MIS outcomes for patients. Gynecologists were one of the first groups of surgeons who used enhanced minimally invasive surgery, MIS, equipment to diagnose and treat many conditions, such as ovarian masses and endometriosis. General surgeons initially used MIS techniques to perform the cholecystectomy as a treatment for gallbladder disease. This type of surgery was successful and offered advantages for patients over open surgery, including less pain, a shorter hospital stay, and an earlier return to routine activities. Surgeons in many specialties, for example, orthopedics, plastics, otolaryngology, and patients have come to prefer this method of surgery over traditional open methods. Some manufacturers have expanded and improved MIS equipment and instrumentation, and others developed the surgical robot. Healthcare facility strategic planning teams should appoint a multidisciplinary team consisting of perioperative RNs, physicians, surgical technologists, infection preventionists, biomedical engineers, and other members of the healthcare team to assist in the design phase of MISOR construction or remodeling projects. The room configuration for MIS procedures is different than that used for traditional open surgeries. The multidisciplinary team needs to ensure the room plans include 1. Adequate access to the surgical field and the patient. 2. Adequate space for equipment placement, including booms, lights, and monitors. 3. Adequate placement of electrical outlets. 4. Methods to reduce ergonomic hazards related to cord and cable placement. 5. Smoke evacuation and evacuation of the pneumoperitoneum. 6. Methods to control and minimize traffic. And 7. Vendor collaboration on devices. AORN's Guideline for Minimally Invasive Surgery provides comprehensive guidance for MIS. Perioperative personnel should refer to this guideline when planning MIS procedures for patients. How-to guide. Many MIS procedures require the use of gas distension media to create a pneumoperitoneum that creates a space in which to view the surgical field when using an endoscope. Surgeons commonly use carbon dioxide for insufflation. Other alternatives include nitrous oxide, air, nitrogen, argon, and helium. Surgeons determine the type of insufflation gas to use after examining the patient's history, the procedure type, and the gas properties. Carbon dioxide is considered a safe gas of choice. However, side effects such as cardiac arrhythmias, gas emboli, and acidosis can occur. 
perioperative nurses and other team members should be aware of patient safety precautions related to the use of insufflation gas to mitigate the risk of injury. The AORN, Guideline for Minimally Invasive Surgery, recommends the following. 1. The manufacturer's instructions for use of insufflation equipment and accessories should be readily available to the perioperative team, and they should follow these instructions, including the flow rate, trocar, filter, and tubing diameter recommendations. 2. The insufflator should be placed at a level higher than the surgical cavity if possible so that the risk of bodily fluids backing up into the device is decreased. 3. The scrub person and RN circulator should work together to flush air from the insufflator and tubing before the tubing is connected to the cannula, for example, Barris needle. This action will decrease the risk of an air embolism. 4. Insufflators should be used only for the purpose for which they are designed. For example, hysteroscopies require an insufflator designed and intended for that use. 5. When preparing for a procedure, perioperative RN should verify that the required gas cylinder is available and that there is a sufficient amount of gas in the cylinder to perform the designated procedure. The perioperative RN also should verify that a replacement cylinder is immediately available. 6. The perioperative nurse should maintain the insufflation pressure at the lowest level necessary to achieve the pneumoperitoneum for the surgeon's specification. Aralamaz and others conducted a randomized controlled trial to test the liver function of patients during laparoscopic cholecystectomy procedures. There were two groups of patients. One group included 20 patients who received a pneumoperitoneum at 10 millimeters of mercury, and the other group included 23 patients who received a pneumoperitoneum at 14 millimeters of mercury. The group that received 14 millimeters of mercury experienced decreased blood flow to the liver and an increased postoperative serum aspartate aminotransferase level. The authors of the study concluded that using a pneumoperitoneum at 10 millimeters of mercury in laparoscopic cholecystectomy was better for patients than a setting of 14 millimeters of mercury. 7. Perioperative nurses should ensure the audible alarm on the insufflator is on and is loud enough to be heard above other noises. And 8. The perioperative team should be prepared to identify a gas embolism and implement appropriate interventions in the event that one occurs. Gas embolisms do not occur frequently, and the ease of reversal of the condition depends on the gas used. Carbon dioxide has a high gaseous solubility, so these gas embolisms are usually reversed rapidly. However, air, nitrous oxide, and helium are less soluble in blood, so embolisms occurring with these gases are harder to reverse. In any gas embolism event, the RN circulator should assist with immediate treatment, which can include A. Stopping the gas insufflation B. Stopping the anesthetic agent and beginning ventilation of the patient with 100% oxygen in an attempt to clear the insufflation gas from the lungs, improve alveolar oxygenation, and decrease hypoxia. Hyperventilating the patient should aid in the removal of a carbon dioxide embolus. C. Changing the patient's position from supine to either Trendelenburg or left lateral to help the air bubble rise to the upper portion of the right atrium, thereby allowing blood flow under the air bubble. D. Infusing copious amounts of IV fluids in an attempt to push the blocked airlock into the lungs where it can be absorbed. Volume expansion will increase the central venous pressure 
and may reduce additional gas entry. E. Administering vasopressors, vasodilators, and inotropes specific to the pulmonary circulation. And F. Performing cardiopulmonary resuscitation. It may be helpful for the facility to have a process in place for changing the cylinders that includes either a designated person to call or educational sessions that are provided to teach perioperative team members how to change the cylinders. These sessions may be more effective if they include return demonstrations to verify competency. Although surgeons use a gas to expand the surgical cavity for many MIS procedures, they also can use fluid as a distension and irrigation media in some instances, including some cavities, for example bladder, and joints. Surgeons can instill fluids into the surgical area by using an infusion pump or by gravity flow with or without a pressure bag. There usually are no complications from fluid extravation or intravation. However, if these do occur, they can be life-threatening. Extravation of fluids may result in edema in the surrounding tissue, intra-abdominal compartment syndrome, and abdominal distension. Intravasion of fluids occurs when the irrigation fluid is absorbed into the patient's bloodstream, which may result in hyponatremia, hypervolemia, and cardiovascular and pulmonary complications. This irrigation fluid absorption is commonly referred to as transurethral resection syndrome because it was first reported during a transurethral resection of the prostate. Perioperative team members can help prevent this complication by closely observing the patient for a decrease in core body temperature, hemodynamic instability, and abdominal distension. Kocher and others conducted a survey of hip arthroscopists in the Multicenter Arthroscopy of the Hip Outcomes Research Network to evaluate the incidence of intra-abdominal fluid extravation, IAFE, in patients undergoing hip arthroscopies. These researchers found that higher arthroscopic fluid pump pressures in iliopsoas tenotomy had a significant correlation as risk factors in the patients who experienced IAFE. The mean pump pressures for reported cases of symptomatic IAFE were 45 to 90 millimeters of mercury. The 15 survey respondents stated that they generally used pump pressures of 30 to 80 millimeters of mercury. The researchers found that iliopsoas tenotomy was reportedly performed only 25% of the time during hip arthroscopy. In the 40 IAFE cases, 25 patients underwent an iliopsoas tenotomy. The authors recommended early detection of intra-abdominal fluid with computed tomography or ultrasound to prevent adverse outcomes and provided an algorithm for treatment after establishing intra-abdominal or retroperitoneal fluid extravation post-hip arthroscopy. Airway compromise is another reported complication during MIS procedures. Edwards and others reported a case of a healthy 53-year-old female patient who developed rapid tracheal deviation and airway compromise as a result of the irrigation fluid used during her shoulder arthroscopy. The authors reported that the irrigation fluid passed from the glenohumeral joint through the tissue planes into the pharyngeal structures. This fluid passage occurred in two minutes immediately after initiating the installation of the saline solution used for irrigation. The surgeon noticed that the ipsilateral trapezius was swollen, and the anesthesia professional confirmed that the patient's airway pressures were becoming elevated. The surgery was stopped, and the patient was transferred to the intensive care unit, where she was intubated and ventilated until the swelling subsided. The authors concluded that surgeons and anesthesia professionals should be mindful that when they are using irrigation fluids, 
there is a risk of rapid airway compromise because of patient anatomical variations or the length of the surgery. They recommended careful placement of the sterile drapes so that personnel can observe the base of the neck for swelling. The RN circulator should confer with the surgeon to determine which irrigation or distension fluid will be used based on the procedure type, type of instruments used, and patient assessment. Non-electrolyte or low-viscosity media, such as 5% mannitol, 1.5% glycine, or 3% sorbitol, are commonly used when monopolar instrumentation is required, as in urologic or gynecologic endoscopy procedures. Patient age and comorbidities can cause transurethral resection syndrome and are important when using non-electrolyte or low-viscosity media. The American Association of Gynecologic Laparoscopists notes that new evidence has led to careful consideration of use of these fluids in premenopausal women. Hyponatremia occurs after surgeries using these solutions with equal frequency in men and women, but premenopausal women who develop hyponatremia and encephalopathy are 25 times more likely to die or become permanently brain damaged than men or postmenopausal women. Patient risk factors related to fluid management include age, weight, skin turgor and quality, sensitivities and allergies to medications, and comorbid conditions or medications that may exacerbate or predispose a patient to developing hyponatremia or hypervolemia, for example, congestive heart failure, Addison's disease, diuretics, antidepressants, pain medications. The perioperative team should monitor the amount of fluid given to the patient and the amount of fluid collected because intravasion or extravasion can occur rapidly with few warning signs. The perioperative team also should monitor the fluid deficit and establish a protocol for treatment or termination of a procedure. The American Association of Gynecologic Laparoscopists practice guidelines for the management of hysteroscopic distending media recommends that an automated fluid management system and media management protocol be in place to assist with assessment of risk factors leading to complications from fluid overload. The perioperative team should accurately monitor all input and output, including fluid returned from the hysteroscope, spilled from the vagina, and lost to the floor. Perioperative nurses should use automated fluid management systems for monitoring because these are able to calculate the amount of fluid dispensed to the patient and compare this with the amount of fluid returned to the system. The automated system measures the deficit, and an alarm on the device alerts the user to potential fluid overload. This timely notification of a deficit provides an opportunity to take corrective action before physiologic compromise of the patient. Personnel should use drapes to capture as much fluid return as possible. They also should collect as much irrigation or distension fluid as possible using a closed container system. The physiological changes for which the patient should be monitored include changes in core temperature, fluid retention in the abdomen, face, or neck, and laboratory test results, such as coagulation studies and electrolytes. Perioperative staff members should use fluid management systems according to the manufacturer's instructions for use. Safety features should include clearly labeled control settings, a quick reference chart that is attached to the equipment, audible alarms, a display that shows the amount of fluid instilled and returned to the regulator to calculate deficit, and a display of cavity pressure measurements. Benefit The advancement of MIS techniques has proven to be beneficial for patients, allowing them to recover faster, have shorter hospital stays or undergo procedures as outpatients, experience less pain and use less analgesia, and return to their normal activities more rapidly.
Surgeons and perioperative teams benefit from techniques that allow them to offer patients advanced MIS options that may have shorter procedure times and less patient pain while contributing to the advancement of the surgical profession. Strategies for Success Minimally invasive surgery techniques require facilities to have more equipment and instruments to provide this type of procedure for patients. Rooms should be standardized to improve efficiency, decrease distraction, and improve patient safety and quality. An excellent strategy is to use a ceiling-mounted boom and video monitoring. The perioperative team should come together to design a room configuration that supports the needed equipment for the procedures being performed. These procedures often require positioning patients in extreme Trendelenburg or reverse Trendelenburg positions. Multidisciplinary facility leaders should include the purchase of appropriate positioning equipment to address prevention of inoperative pressure injuries when designing specialty rooms for MIS procedures. Sometimes, magnetic resonance imaging, MRI, is used during the MIS procedures. If a procedure requires MRI, the perioperative team should implement the following safety practices. 1. All equipment and instruments used in the procedure room must be compatible with the MRI machine to prevent staff member and patient injury. 2. All team members need to complete MRI safety training before working in a room with an MRI machine. 3. Facility leaders should create a safety checklist that includes timeout procedures to ensure the environment is safe. And 4. Facility leaders should provide screening tools for MRI personnel to help prevent adverse events. The magnetic field can cause metal implants in the body to heat up or induce current, inflicting patient burns, twisting implant wires, or inciting possible malfunction of the implant. The facility leaders should appoint an MRI director to oversee MRI hybrid ORs. The MRI director is responsible for establishing, reviewing, and updating policies, ensuring the MRI safety practices are consistent, reviewing any adverse events, and facilitating continuous quality improvement. The MRI area is usually divided into four zones. Zone 1 is uncontrolled and accessible to the public. If in the surgical suite, Zone 1 is accessible by all personnel. Zone 2 is the interface between Zones 1 and 3. Zone 3 is a strictly controlled area containing the control room or vestibule for the screened patients and personnel. Zone 4 is the scanner room. Entrance is restricted to only screened personnel and patients because of the strong magnetic force in this zone. The American College of Radiology describes personnel working in an MRI scanner environment as levels 1 and 2. Level 1 MRI personnel have minimal safety training and work in zones 1 to 3. Level 2 MRI personnel, for example, MRI technicians, have more extensive training and supervise all non-MRI personnel in zones 3 and 4. Patients and personnel who enter zone 3 must pass an MRI safety screening process to determine if there are implanted or metal foreign bodies present that could pose a risk to them in Zone 3. A screening checklist should be used to document any implants or other risks to personnel and patients. Wrap-up As with all new technology, MIS procedures present both benefits and unforeseen harms to personnel and patients. 
Evolving techniques and new technology offer patients advanced options with MIS. Surgeons and perioperative personnel are leading the way to improve these technologies and play key roles in the ongoing research and development in this field. Perioperative team members should stay current on new research related to MIS by reviewing applicable national guidelines, establish safety protocols to keep patients and perioperative personnel safe, and learn about new equipment and technologies currently being used in MIS procedures.